and welcome to There Are Three of Me. I'm mostly Gabrielle Lawson, but I'm also Ina Corio and Philippe de Lamatrac. We write fan fiction, but don't let that fool you. We love great writing and we always try to write our fan fiction well. One way we do that is by being grammatically correct. This won't be an easy thing to talk about, but I'm going to try. This is the grammar episode and other things. But first, a story. Ina Coriel only has two stories that you haven't heard, so this will be the longer of them. You've already heard from this narrator as an old grandfather with his grandson, but you hadn't yet heard his first story. This came to me while I was driving. I heard, with the proper accent to fit the, fit the movies, I was seated upon my horse, and then I found myself seated upon the ground. Well, I had to know more. So I wrote it. Standard disclaimers apply. I make no profit off these stories. All right. Myth and Memory by Ina Coriel. Yes, I was there. I was a door warden under Hama, may our fathers receive him, before war came openly to our lands. Few there are of us left who guarded the doors of Medicel. Hama fell to the wargs, and most of the others fell at Helm's Deep. So many fell at Helm's Deep. No, you did not ask about the deep, and I thank you for that. Hard memories are left me of that battle. You asked about the elf, and I can see the fear and wonder in your eyes. I once held those same fears. And then one came to Edoras. It was before the war began in earnest, after Aemer King, who was not yet king then, had been banished by the schemer Wormtongue. I was not on watch the hour they arrived, but Yonwin, my friend, told me, for he had seen them approach Medeseld and had witnessed Hama allowing them entrance. Gandalf the Grey had returned to Rohan, and not alone. He had as his companions a man and a dwarf. And an elf. An elf! I could scarcely believe that Hama would allow such a creature to pass the gate. Ah, but Greenmount Wormtongue passed the same gate every day, you say, so it should hardly have been such a wonder in those dark times. I waited with Yonwin below the stairs to Mediseld, hoping to spot the wizard's companions, and fearing it. The dwarf did not intrigue so much, and hardly the man, but an elf? Stories are still told of the witch in the wood, of men who wandered beneath those trees and never returned. So I waited, with both anticipation and trepidation, to glimpse the foul creature. I imagined a tall being, half again the height of a man, with a grim countenance, strange and foreign, with eyes like coal that could see right through a man. You would imagine the same, I see. So you understand, then, why I waited around the corner of the stairs and hoped to go unnoticed. And yet, when the doors were opened, it was Theoden King, may our fathers receive him, who emerged looking nearly as young and hale as those bright days passed before Wormtongue became his minder. Grima, too, emerged from the court and was thrown upon the ground by our reborn king. It was a glorious thing to behold, and it took my mind off from the elf. It was only after Wormtongue ran off like the coward we all know him for that I remembered again my reason for lurking so near the court. I looked now for that other fell creature and half-hoped I would not find him for the fear in my heart. The dwarf was e easy to spot by his stature and Gandalf by his beard. That left only two creatures, the fowler of which was the man. 
The other was standing beside the Lady Eowyn, and truth be told, it was beyond me to choose the fairer of the two. He was tall, as I had thought, but not so tall as I had imagined. He was slender and lithe, with hair the color of the noon sun, braided in part, but left long, much like we keep ours. Far from grim, his face had held only peaceful watchfulness. His blue eyes shone with curiosity as he regarded the king and his companions. He looked like no more than a young man in build, hardly older in face than myself and Yonwin. His ears, though, gave him away for an elf, pointed as they were. He was not dressed as I might have thought a sorcerer would, in thick, dark robes, perhaps, but in light clothes of green and brown, with a long cloak matching those of the man and dwarf. He seemed to have a regal air about him. Yet even the fair can be witches, Yonwin reminded me, though I found myself doubting that so fair a creature could be dangerous at all. Still, I resolved with Yonwin to watch him when our duties permitted. Because my watch began at sunset, I did not see more of the elf that day, though Yonwin did, as his watch ended when mine began. Following the funeral of the king's son, Gandalf and the strangers all retired into the court, there to rest and be fed, for they had journeyed long from Anduin across the plains in pursuit of a band of Urukai that had taken their halfling friends. This much of the companion's tale was known, but not what became of the friends, nor the purpose for their journey before they were separated. Though, of course, we know it now, as Sigrid the Bard sings of it every year at this time. And nay, I did not see the halflings, though I know one rode with us to Gondor's aid in secret. But in those days, trust was not a thing easily given, so their mission was guarded and kept close. Of it, perhaps, the king was told, but not the lesser door wardens such as myself or Yonwen. The man and dwarf ate much that night, Yonwen reported, but the elf ate not at all. Yonwin assigned several possible motives for the elf's lack of appetite, arrogance and distrust of our food being the most likely in his thinking, and yet when Gandalf took to counseling the king on the matter of Saruman and the war, the man participated and the dwarf busied himself with food, but the elf stood silent as a sentry and never uttered a word. This perplexed Yonwin greatly, and he asked me if elves could speak in the manner of men, but I could not say, for I had never heard one then. It was that night during my watch that I learned the answer, or something near. I did not find out if elves could speak, but I no longer doubted that they had voices. Late that night, though his companions doubtless were resting, the elf emerged from the court and stood upon the stairs gazing up at the sky and the stars. He spoke not to me nor the other, door, other wardens at the door, and neither did we offer welcome. His feet made no sound as he skipped down a few step of the steps to get a better view, and then I heard a tune, soft and fair as the creature who made it. I could not understand the words he sang. I could hardly even hear them. But the melody that wafted by on the breeze spoke to me of beauty and light threatened by shadow and grief. All night he sang, and it did not even occur to me that his song might be a bewitchment in itself. Yet I could not deny that it had stirred me something in me. While often I found the night too quiet and a challenge to endure in full awareness, this night was both long and short, and when the first light of the sun began to appear, I did not expect it so soon. The elf, however, did not seem surprised. He merely stopped singing and walked back into court, the court. We wardens might have been statues for all the notice he gave us. As soon as he was gone, the calm of night gave way to the noise of morning. Roosters gave the alarm, horses stamped, and doors began to open. 
Yanwen appeared only moments later with the other wardens of his shift, and then Hama came out with orders from the king that we should leave Edoras and make for Helm's Deep, there to guard our people from Saruman's minions. It was good that I had taken my rest before my duty, as I would not now get sleep. I thought, though, of the elf and his sleepless night after his equally sleepless journey from Anduin, and wondered if he would be tired for this next journey. Like the rest of the younger wardens, Yanwen and I were assigned to help the people of Edoras to pack what they needed. I watched, though, for the elf when I could. While I no longer had fear of him, he still held a fascination for me. He and his companions came out, complaining about the order. I should say his companions were complaining. Gandalf was fairly barking his disagreement with the king, while the man, and surely you realize this, that this was Lord Aragorn or King Elisar of Gondor, defended Theoden King's reasoning, saying he did what he thought was best for his people. The elf was as silent as the day before, though now he carried his weapons as he followed the others to the stables. I caught only a glimpse of them, a long bow of fine craftsmanship and a quiver of arrows. I could see no more. It would take far too long to tell you of the entire journey to Helm's Deep, and I am certain Sigrid could tell it better. So I will tell you in brief, and keep to the matter at hand, that being the elf. The journey was long and slowed by the necessity of keeping pace with women and children and those men who had no horses. We ate as we rode, and broke only for sleeping a few scant hours each night. Yonwen and I amused ourselves by making a game of the elf. Our duty? It was our duty to watch the elf, though no such order had been given. We couldn't leave an elf loose in the line, Yonwen said, who knew what such a creature might do if allowed to go freely among us. As for myself, well, someone had to keep an eye on Yonwen, and I was curious. And he could have been right about the elf, I suppose. For his part, the elf made it interesting. For though we strove to watch him at all times, any distraction could, would take him from our sight, and we would have to search for him all over again. Sometimes he would be upon a gray horse, Arud, a horse of, of Rohan, given him by Aemir himself, with the dwarf behind him, and at other times he would be alone. And yet other times we found him walking, alone or beside the horse, and though our shoulders would sag from fatigue and from the weight of our armor, he wore none, and his posture was always erect. Yanwen asked me if elves ever slept, and I asked him why he thought I might know so much about elves. Still, the elf presented an intriguing puzzle. Did elves eat or sleep or speak? The one we had on hand to observe had done none of these things that we had witnessed, even days into the march. Now you must understand, the elf was not aware of our game, so we attempted to keep behind him and out of his notice as we spied. Always there were people and horses and carts between us, and our curiosity was mounting. Yanwin suggested we find him at camp when everyone was resting and we had no other duty. We stopped late that night, with but six hours before we would march on in the morning. Yanwin and I ate our meal quickly and saw to our duty to those of the people nearest us. Then, seeing them settled in and well guarded by others, we stole away to find our quarry. Oft-times the elf could be found at the front of the column, so we looked forward first, moving quickly up the line. But he was not there. We turned back, taking better care, but also worrying we'd be asleep on our horses if we did not find the elf quickly. Two hours passed before we found his companions well back in the line and resting together not far from the king and Lady Eowyn. 
It was a dark night, with no light other than the stars and moon. Our people, with their dark clothes, littered the ground here and there around burnt-out campfires whose embers glowed faintly in the night, and we, clad in armor as we were, tried to steal closer to see if perhaps the elf was there among them. Aye, it is a wonder that I ever made door warden, and Yonwen as well, for we were nearly upon him by the time we spotted him, even though he was as light as a light compared to the darkness around him. And indeed, when we did find him, he was looking straight at us, so much for our supposed stealth. So startled was he that Yonwen tripped and fell not ten feet from where the elf was sitting, propped up against some bundle or other. He made such a clamor that I was sure everyone would wake. A few of the nearest people mumbled, but the elf, amazingly, did not move. I dropped more quietly to the ground beside Yonwen, and we halted there, hoping that, having miraculously missed the elf's notice, we might continue the night the same way. Yonwen fairly shook with fear and whispered something about a spell being cast in retribution. I had no such fear any longer. The song I had heard in Edoras pushed away such thoughts. How could so gentle a song come from a dark and evil heart? But still I wish not to be found spying and have to explain myself. We waited there a quarter of an hour, with the elf still staring in our direction, before I realized with a start that he did not see us. I tried to rise, and Yonwen pulled at my arm to keep me down. He does not see, I whispered, brushing off his hand. They do sleep, but with open eyes, I said. Then I urged us away to our own rest. Morning would come quickly, and we would march the whole day without another rest. Yonwen hesitated, but as the elf had not stirred at my rising, he must have realized that I was right. We left that place, again stepping around fires and over sleeping bodies until we found our own bedrolls and fell into them. His eyes were open, Yonwen repeated with a shudder. That cold stare will haunt my dreams. And I must admit that it was not welcome in mine either. Morning came quickly indeed, and it was hard to rise from so little sleep, but rise we did, as duty demands. Helm's Deep was still a day out. We were still behind the king and his escorts and thus the elf, so we mounted our horses and went quickly forward. The dwarf we found with Eowyn, Lord Aragorn, and Theoden king not far behind, but no elf. We rode on a bit and then passed our horses to a couple of women with heavy burdens and small children. The women thanked us and agreed when we said we would return for them before the noon meal. He must be forward, Yonwen reasoned. He's always forward. So forward we went. Keeping to the outside of the column, we moved from one side to the other, always looking ahead to try and spot him upon his gray steed. But our stomachs began to tell us of the new meal's approach and of our need to return to our horses, and still we had not found him. We turned together to go back and nearly walked right into the object of our search. Yonwen tripped himself this time and fell promptly to the ground. I was startled and stepped back. The elf cocked one eyebrow as he regarded my companion. Is this yours? he asked, holding up a small dagger. I looked back to Yonwen and stifled a chuckle of amusement. <laughs> there was his answer. Elves do speak. When I looked back at the elf, I found his eyebrow cocked at me, which was a bit disturbing somehow, now that I mention it. Yonwen, whether out of shock or fear, had yet to speak, and he was still sitting on the ground. I did not remember losing my blade, but I patted my armor anyway, to be certain. I felt my own hilt and remembered Yonwen's fall the night before. I looked, and the sheath upon his belt was empty. It is his, I replied for my stricken friend, though I was a bit chagrined that my own voice was hardly more than a squeak. Even asleep, the elf had known we were there. 
He still held the dagger, though he now extended it towards its owner. "'You will find this valuable in the coming days, I should think,' he said, and I noted his speaking voice was not so much different from his singing. It seemed also to have a sense of melody to it. The elf regarded Yonwen a moment, but Yonwen still made no move to rise or to take back his knife. So the elf turned to me. His eyes may not have been black. They were radiant blue, if you must know. But I did feel now that he could see right through me. He did not speak, yet I could feel a question in his gaze. But in such a gaze he exposed himself, and I felt I could read much in his eyes as well. No hatred or danger lurked in those pools of blue. Youth was in his face, but age was in those eyes. Years and seasons and memories beyond count— I remembered one other characteristic I had heard whispered about elves. Immortal. I nodded and took the dagger from him, though, as Yonwen had made no move to do so. Yonwen decided then to rise, and so I bent to help him to his feet. When I looked up again, the elf was gone. When next we saw the elf, Yonwen and I were mounted again, and he was standing atop a hill, firing that long bow at a large force of approaching wargs. Lord Aragorn had sounded the alarm, and we who were riders had split from the column to meet the threat. The elf, always out front, stood waiting for them, horseless, and yet wargs and orcs fell to his arrows. The pounding of horses' hooves and the knowledge that we faced danger that threatened our people put a fire in my heart that I have not yet felt before. Grima had seen to it that no battle had actually come to Edoras, so I was not yet ready for the sight of orgs and those fell beasts. But danger and my king's command had built up the excitement within me. Directly in front of me was Erod, but only the dwarf was atop him. The elf was still shooting his bow. He did not look back or even flinch as the first of the horses passed him. Erod was nearly upon him, and I was sure he'd be overrun. But at the last moment, he turned, caught hold of Arad's breast collar, and then he was swinging around the horse and up into the saddle. I heard not a few gasps around me, but we had little time to be impressed at the elves' feet, for the wargs were upon us. I had never seen an orc in the flesh before that day, and I counted myself fortunate on that account. Hideous beings they were, atop equally hideous beasts. The wargs were dog-like, a corruption of a wolf, perhaps, enlarged to the size of our horses and many times more fierce. The orcs atop them carried jagged blades and heavy axes, and even if one defended against the rider, the warg could still kill. Battle among these beings was utter chaos, and only one clear memory emerges from the blur of events that led up to it. I had forgotten about the elf, about Yonwen, and even about the king, as I swung my blade this way and that and tried to dodge and skirt the fangs and claws of, of the wargs. There was only myself, my horse, and whoever should come up against us. I found myself facing a charging orc and beheaded the beast with my sword. It fell, but the warg it had been riding rammed in against Gerbald, my horse, nearly toppling him over. Gerbald bucked and began to thrash. It was all I could do to hold on and keep in the saddle. I could feel warm liquid seeping between the plates of armor at my leg, though I felt no hurt. The horse was wounded, mortally so, I feared. And suddenly I found myself not seated upon him, but seated on the ground. Gerbald stumbled away and fell to the ground convulsing until he died. I pushed myself up with my hands as I turned my head, but dropped right back to the ground. Not six feet from my outstretched legs stood the warg, its claws drenched in red and its teeth dripping as it snarled. 
Some say that as a man is about to meet his death, he sees every event of his life pass before his eyes in one quick flash. But it was not so, for in the instant that my gaze met that of the warg, it was as if time slowed and the world became silent. It seemed that we watched the other for an age, or at least an hour, though in truth it had to have been but a moment. As I stared at my death before me, my eyes caught a flash of white to the side. It drew nearer and passed between the warg and I, and I knew it for a horse, the gray horse, Arrowed, and when it had passed, something remained the elf. The warg, momentarily set aback by Arid's charge, now gathered itself for attack. I could see each muscle tense, but the elf between us did not move. The warg lunged high, fully intending, I'm certain, to take the elf's head from his shoulders. But just when those teeth would have torn into his neck, the elf's neck was no longer there. He had dropped to one knee. As he did so, he raised one hand, which now held a long white knife, the blade of which disappeared fully up under the chin of the warg. The warg, for its part, gurgled loudly and flung its claws about for a moment before it fell limp against the elf's shoulders. The elf, however, did not sag. Though I had felt the immense weight of the warg as its bulk had delivered Gerbalt's mortal wound, the elf merely lifted his arm higher and the warf warg slid off his blade and fell to the side. One might think that time would have resumed its usual cadence at that point, as the elf had saved my life. But as the elf turned toward me, his hand no longer held the knife. In one smooth moment, he had drawn his bow, knocked an arrow to it, and pulled. As his gaze met mine, I knew what it felt like to be an orc. Where I had seen ages in his eyes before, I now saw a ferocity so intense that that gaze alone might have stopped my heart within my chest. His countenance now matched the one I had feared when I'd first learned of his presence in Edoras, and I knew that my mortal danger had not yet passed. Before I could even muster the thought of moving away, he released the arrow, and I felt its breath stir the hair at the side of my neck, but I did not feel its point. A thud sounded loud and near me, and I turned to see a mass of brown fur at my back and the gold-feathered fletching of the arrow that killed it. Time chose that moment to return, but I found myself still lagging behind. I was still staring at the warg behind me when I heard the elf in front of me. "'Are you wounded?' he asked, his voice much more stern and hurried than earlier in the day. My mind was still shaking off the threat of death that had been so near, and as such I could not answer— I could only shake my head as I, re I turned back to him. His countenance had hardly softened, and I found myself somewhat frightened. Then take up your blade and get to your feet, he ordered. The battle does not wane. He whistled, and Eret returned to him. He sprang atop him and was gone. I obeyed, joining once again the chaos and blur of battle. When that fight was over and the field was ours, I looked first for my king as my duty required. Finding him safe, I sought next for Yonwin. And finding him dead, I thought of little else, except to notice the elf also caught in grief. He gave little away to show it, and I beheld him from a distance only. He stood straight as always, though his head was bent forward, looking down over a cliffside. But when Theoden King gave orders to leave the dead upon the field, he turned his head and regarded the king with a gaze so strong I could sense it even from my place at Yonwen's side. He and I felt the same. I did not wish to leave Yonwen to Isengard's beast that would return and devour his body. And Lord Aragorn, I would learn, had fallen from that cliff, and leaving would have meant that the elf had to accept that there was no hope left for his companion. 
The king's order stood, and we left them behind, our friends and fellows. The elf, though, would prove more fortunate than I that day, for Lord Aragorn did not die. He was saved by the waters below the cliff, and met us again at Helm's Deep with grim news of the numbers that would face us. Yonwin, however, did not rise from his place on the ground and come riding to us in the evening. For me there was little joy at Lord Aragorn's return. Grim, indeed, was the news he brought us, and I was to face it without my long, lifelong friend. Within the span of one day and night, though it be the longest of my life, the last vestiges of my youth were torn from me, and the game I had shared with Yonwin was thrown aside in the face of the struggle for life and death on the walls of Helm's Deep. I cannot bring myself to say more of that battle except to tell you that I marvel at my survival, and that it may well haunt me all my life. As I stumbled through the bodies that littered the keep and the battlements, I watched my feet to mind their placing. The stones were slick with blood, and I had no wish to fall. And so it was that once again I walked into the elf. "'Are you wounded?' he asked me again, though now his eyes were once again filled with age, and his voice was soft and sorrowful. "'No,' I answered, having found my voice when I lost my youth. "'Though I scarcely believe it possible, and what of you, Master Elf?' He sighed and looked away, across the walls where both the free folk and the fowl were scattered dead. My only wound is in my heart, that so have many have perished this night, and yet I, too, find it a wonder any have survived at all, and for that my heart is also glad. It is not an easy thing to be of two hearts in only one body. We would not have lasted at all without your people, I told him, and I would not have lasted the wargs if not for you. You have my thanks, Master Elf. I offered him my hand, and he took it briefly. His grip was stronger than I might have guessed, but it was quick and did not pain me over much. Live well, young one, he offered, with a slight smile to show his mirth. Then he turned and walked nimbly away to meet the dwarf, Lord Aragorn, and Gandalf. I never even learned his name. I will say yet one other thing of Helm's Deep, that lying alongside the bodies of men and orcs were the corpses of his people, of elves from the very wood we so feared. Lifetimes of memory beyond count lay lost forever upon those stones. Their immortality could not shield them from the points of arrows or the blades of knives, in that they were no different than us. Though we feared them, remembering not their alliance with men in ages past, they came to help us, to fight and die with us. And I learned that those rumors and fairy stories I had heard of elves were right and that they were wrong. Let us change our stories, then, to something closer to the truth. Fell and fierce elves are as warriors, and yet they are a fair race of gentle beauty and countless age. Our fears do them not justice, though we should not think them weak for their fairness. They fade now to myth and memory, taking their beauty and their strength, and Middle-earth shall be the poorer for their passing. The end. Well, what did you think? Personally, I think that's Anai's best story. That last paragraph was added in the last draft, and it just seems so right. Okay, grammar. Everyone's favorite subject. I get it. I'm very good at it in English. I'm fairly good at it in French. In German, it starts to get dicey. In Czech and Polish, yikes. Yeah, I get it. For some people, grammar is very, very hard. 
English comes naturally to me because I was born in the U.S. and my parents spoke English. Likewise, English grammar sort of came naturally to me. It's easy to me. And once I learned it in elementary school and junior high, it stuck. Sometimes my writing instructors would have us free write. That's when you just put pen to paper and write anything that comes to your mind. You don't worry about grammar, spelling, or punctuation. Mine always came out in sentences and paragraphs with proper punctuation. It's the way I think. Heck, I got a perfect score in analytical reasoning on the GRE test before I went to grad school. I'm just wired this way. I very much enjoy Weird Al's word crimes parody, though I never did have to diagram a sentence, so I don't know how. You may not be great at grammar. There are lots of ins and outs and rules to grammar. I recently read a story chapter that was missing a lot of commas, mainly in compound sentences. Compound sentences combine one or more independent clauses. They are joined by a conjunction, and if either clause has more than four words, you must separate them with a comma. You catch all that? Uh, what's an independent clause? Well, that's a group of words that on their own could be a whole sentence with a subject predicate and maybe an object. And I've just thrown three more grammatical terms at you. Find yourself a friend who's good at grammar, or better yet, a good grammar reference book. It's a good investment. Some grammar tip trip lines out there include words that sound alike but aren't spelled alike and mean very different things. There... T-H-E-R-E is the opposite of here. It's easy to recognize because here is part of the spelling. T-H-E-I-R, there, is a possessive form of they. It's their book. That book is theirs. There, T-H-E-Y apostrophe R-E, is a contraction of they and are. It's, I-T apostrophe S, is likewise a contraction of it and is. It's, I-T-S, is the possessive form of it. If you're ever unsure, twice, try swapping out the it's for it is and see if your sentence still makes sense. If it does, you need the apostrophe. If it doesn't, leave it out. There are also words that are similar, but the spellings trip people up. Lose, L-O-S-E, is related to lost. If you lose something, it is lost. Loose, L-O-O-S-E, is when something is not solidly co connected. The five-year-old boys may five-year-old boys may find a loose tooth in their mouths. Recently, I've seen patients, customers of a doctor, when patients, the ability to calmly wait something out was needed. Lie and lay are a tough one even for me. Dialogue grammar and punctuation trips people up more than regular prose. Some people find dialogues hard to write in general. There are two sides to writing good dialogue, grammar and craft. Grammar is much more straightforward to teach or learn, but usually with a visible example. So it's a little hard in a podcast. But I'm going to read you one anyway. Ina Quario's Last Drabble is a dialogue. A Brief Respite by Ina Coriel. In Imladris it dwells, Boromir repeated. My father says it is a realm of elves in the north, home to Elrond Half-Elven. Aemir leaned against the stall. I never heard of it. Elves, though, I've heard of. Dangerous lot, half or whole. We likely shall never see that horse again. Boromir smiled, glad for the moment of mirth. 
Good to know your concern is right placed, Aemer, son of Aemund. Fear not, I shall see your horse. You shall see your horse again. Aemor took hold of Boromir's shoulder. I speak in seriousness, Boromir, son of Denethor. Can the horse return if her rider does not? There we go, exactly 100 words in dialogue. Were you able to hear all that grammar? Of course not. So some grammar points about dialogue. Each speaker gets a new paragraph, always. Let me repeat that. Each speaker gets a new paragraph, always. Quotation marks are placed at the beginning of the spoken words and at the end of them, after the punctuation. Periods are changed to commas before the quotation if there is a tag, example, he said, following. Einai's Drabble has one example of this. Quotes, in Imladris it dwells, comma, quotes, Boromir repeated, period. Tags end with commas if they come before the spoken words. Let's turn that example around. Boromir repeated, comma, quote, in Imladris it dwells, period, quote. If the spoken part goes on, unbroken, to span a new paragraph, no end quotes are used on the first paragraph, while the new started quotes do appear at the second paragraph. And remember that POV comes into play. If you move the camera from one character's thoughts during the dialogue to another, insert a line break to indicate a scene change. Quotations within quotes are denoted with single quotes placed with the same rules for punctuation. Direct thoughts are italicized and punctuated exactly as quotes, except we use asterisks in place of quotation marks, if writing in plain text, and italics in HTML, rich text, or Word. Since I type all my stories in text first, I used one asterisk for the direct thoughts at the beginning and two after. This makes it easier to convert into HTML using find and replace later. As to what the character should say, my advice is a bit more esoteric. Listen to your characters, write what they say, and try to vary your tags. Don't use too many saids. It's not often easy. In most writing classes, you'll hear to make every sentence serve your plot. Good advice, though I feel it's more of a guideline you should keep in mind now and then. Why? Because we don't talk that way. We go through life having conversations we don't plan out before we speak. Neither do characters. Think of them as real people in re a real situation. One speaks, says something you plan for him to say. The other responds. How? How she would respond in a real situation to that real speech the other character just gave. How will she feel? What would she say? Listen to her. You might be surprised. Write it anyway. That said, we go through our daily lives having a lot of useless babble thrown at us and put out by us. Not every bit of dialogue is worthy of being in your story. And that's where that guideline comes in. If your character is a babble, babbler, let him babble. If the whole dialogue is really needless to the story, don't bother with it. Here's my dialogue advice in a pinch. In all things story, write like an actor. Inhabit your characters for the time you're writing them. 
feel what they feel, think what they think as they would think it, and you'll know what they would say. I have been intimidated by characters and or their professions and still found ways to write them that surprised me. I'm no counselor or psychiatrist, and yet I've written convincing, maybe not to a psychiatrist, dialogue-laden scenes between a character and a counselor. I didn't plan too much of what would fit the plot. I just listened to the counselor character and wrote what she said. Then I listened to the other character trying to evade and wrote that too. Some people read Alien Us and thought I made a medical. I had a medical background, but I just tried to think like a scientist because my characters were scientists. Write like an actor. Be the characters. Feel the characters. Hear the characters. Write them. Sometimes you may find you need to make up a language for your story. I did for my angel Buffy the Vampire Slayer story and for Alien Us. I actually had to make up two languages for the latter. I have been complimented in my use of original language in, in those stories. One reader said it seemed like I didn't just throw up on the keyboard. I think it helped that I studied French and German and Czech and any foreign languages. It gave me reason to see that different languages do grammar differently, but also that some things are universal. French has a lot of the same grammar, but sometimes different word order. I learned to conjugate verbs. German added declinations for definite and indefinite articles and had four cases. Czech added them for just about everything, and there were seven cases, and those were divided into masculine, feminine, and neuter, and those were broken down into animate and inanimate, and then you had to do it all over again for plurals. <sighs> I am not fluent in Czech. But I do feel those foreign languages gave me an edge. My keys are trying to keep similar sounds, using a lot of the same letters and combinations, and I use declinations, putting a twist on a root word when it is used differently. If you do make up a language, keep notes of, of your vocabulary so you can stay consistent. Here are examples from Alien Us that show a root word and its var variations. In the Jiren language, zhush means blood, while zhusha means blood test, and haizhush means blood pressure. And here's a verb. Hure is help, but hura is helped. All right, let's get some other things out of the way quickly. Titles. Titles can be hard, and they can be easy. It depends on the story. It depends on the title. Sometimes you want a title that really lets your reader know what's going on. Other times, you don't want to give too much away. If it's not one thing, dot, 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 was easy for me. There was so much going on in that story. It had an A plot, a B plot, even a C and D plot. Oswiecim was a bit more secretive. It's the Polish name for the town near that most infamous of camps, Auschwitz. It gives the plot away, if you know that fact. The journey was what that story was about, though the journey didn't start until nine chapters in. A clever plan simply was. The character had a clever plan. First consideration came from a line in the Hippocratic Oath. Myth and memory was from that last paragraph that turned out to be the best paragraph of that story. Namesake was a given, since the grandson had the remembered friend's name. Others were harder. Aftermath which I posted as a whip work in progress, went for a long time as to be determined. Alien Us came to me quickly, but I felt it wasn't quite right, so I kept looking for other titles, but it always came back to Alien Us. I still don't know what to call the sequel. 
I set myself up for a challenge in momentous, which is Latin for moments, and I'm writing that story in moments. But I started titling every chapter. I've just recently posted 49, eight years into the story, story time, and I've come up with 49 separate titles. I started with idioms, but I just couldn't keep that up. If you're stuck on a title, try what I did for Aftermath. Write a bunch of titles, anything you can think of that might fit your story. Keep mulling them over until one sticks. Aftermath wasn't actually on my list, but it was me looking at that list until I finally realized this story is about the aftermath of the character's internment at the Burger concentration camp. Aftermath was the title I needed all along. Pen names or pseudonyms. Most fan fiction writers do not post under their real names. I'm an exception. I'm not completely alone in that, though. I also write under pen names. Ina Coriel for the Lord of the Rings stories, just because it's fun to have an elvish name. Back in the day, a website called The Barrow Downs had an elvish name generator. When I put in my first, middle, and last name, Ina Coriel came out. I looked in my English er, elvish dictionary because, yeah, I got one of those. Ina means holy, and ekor means stirring, and the I, er, E-L on the end just denotes a female. Gabrielle means God is my strength, and Ina Coriel means holy stirring. Is that not perfect? Philippe, as I said, came out of a desire to write a story that was bugging me, but wasn't adhering to my high standards of plot. Gabrielle is not afraid to torture a character, don't get me wrong, she, but she only ever does it in service to the overall plot. While searching for a plot, I could not find the plot that I could only find the plot that got the characters tortured. Yep, torture for torture's sake. Fictional, of course. <sighs> Sigh. So I hid behind a man's name. Philippe is a nice name. It's French. And a friend, Dwemerdine, I think, suggested I try a French dictionary. So I opened it to a random page, and I picked the first word I saw on that page. Matraque. And as if to confirm the perfectness of this name, the word at the keyword at the top of the page was massacre. Massacre and bludgeon or truncheon. I tried to not even write like Gabrielle to give it my B game, so to speak, but I just couldn't do it. So that got my A game for 10 whole years. I eventually did tell people openly that Philippe de Lamatrac and Gabrielle Lawson were the same person. I continued to use the pen name for other less worthy stories meaning fandoms that Gabrielle Lawson thought were not worthy of fanfiction, like fanfiction from big video games. She can be a bit of a snob in these things. Another thing you can do once you become good at writing stories is use gimmicks. For example, in many of the first Call of Duty games, your characters, when you played them, never, ever spoke. That was the case in Call of Duty Ghosts. There were times you think you'd hear something from your character, like when a bad guy slowly stabs him in the shoulder, or after he got separated when the plane went down, or when the big bad guy shot his father in the head right in front of him. His brother was cussing up a storm. Nothing from our guy. So, as a gimmick, I made him mute and gave him a backstory to explain it. A more serious gimmick was used in Osvientium. I wanted to show that it was easy to die in Auschwitz and hard to live. So I decided early on that only one of the character's camp friends would survive and all the others would die in different ways to show that there were many different ways to die in Auschwitz. Just remember to use a gimmick in a plot. You shouldn't use it as a plot. 
let's throw something else in here too. Tools. Use whatever tools help you write the story. It, I've got how done it books from Writer's Digest that discuss body trauma and poisons, so I knew just what was needed to counteract the cyanide from the gas chamber, and it's another poison, believe it or not. I had to keep a duty roster of who was on duty when in that story. The Defiant was looking for its missing crewmen, including the one in Auschwitz. I had to keep a list of names and clues up in if it's not one thing, as it was my first mystery story, and I had to make sure my red herring was working. I read the, that diary of the Burger Prisoner from start to finish. I googled army medicine during World War II. I looked up the names of animals and monsters and places in Final Fantasy XV for Momentous. I started that before I even played the game. Whatever tools you think you need, find it, read it, make it, use it. I'll close with this topic my favorite paragraph of the article that inspired the class and then this podcast. And I quote, Don't be afraid to be evil. Jerk your readers around, pull on their heartstrings, make them laugh, make them cry, and make them stay up all night because they can't put your story down. It takes all these things we've talked about, beginnings, middles, characters, pacings, ends, to do that and not leave your readers hating you for manipulating their psyches like that. Handle those things well, and your readers may darn well be traumatized, but they'll thank you for it. Just remember to keep your evil in your fiction and be gracious and kind in real life. If anyone does thank you for making them think counseling was necessary, be sure to thank them for telling you so. Feedback is a gift, and it should be treated as such at all times, even when the feedback is not what you wanted to hear. End quote. I like to write stories about hard things, emotional turmoil, physical turmoil, mental anguish. I'm into angst, and evil works well there. But you can also be evil in humor. Dwimmerdine went on for stanza after stanza after stanza after stanza in The Hamster, her pose The Raven parody. It, she hurt me laughing the first time I read it. But there's one rule. You want good evil. Good evil is when your readers love you for it. If they hate you, you didn't do it right. Sometimes we do get good evil in our TV shows. Grave Danger, Stalker, and Fanny Smacken were three very good evil episodes of CSI Crime Scene Investigation. There was that episode of Criminal Minds in the second season when a serial killer with multiple personalities took Spencer Reed captive. Oh my, that was evil. Evil is my forte. I've killed hundreds, if not thousands, in my stories, but the individuals is where I get my evil on. I've stuck a Star Trek character in a Nazi concentration camp. I vivisected two characters, one of them more than once, and he felt it all. I had him tortured and sentenced to a gruesome death and left my readers hanging through at least two chapters to find out if he survived. I stuck a character in a cave for six months with but with nothing but a replicator that made only distasteful ration bars as his only companion. But one of my favorite evil tricks is to make my readers know, maybe even like, the character before I kill them on screen, so to speak. I did it in my very first story I posted, and I did it in Osvenshim. Remember the character I gave my favorite recurring dream? And heck, in Alien Us, we got to know the guy for the majority of the story. Evil is fun when it's fiction. Give it a try. 
Join me next time and we'll talk about the magic. Do drop me a line if you feel like it. I'd love to hear from you. You can tweet me at Atinhildi, I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I, or leave me a message at fanfiction.net or archive of our own. Or record a voice comment with Anchor. It's easy. In fact, that's how I got Anchor in the first place. See you next time.